Well, good morning. My name's Asher. If you are new, I'm one of the staff ministers here. And um, if this is your first time, we've been going through a series in 2 Peter called Onward. And at first, I didn't know why it was called Onward, even though that was my idea. But I believe what Peter is telling us to do, that in light of scoffing or in light of doubt or fear, we are encouraged to press on and look onward towards the Lord's return. I want to take one of my favorite stories from what I think is the greatest TV show in world history. And in this story, it says a guy is walking down the street and falls into a wall and falls into a hole where the walls are so steep that he can't get out. A doctor passes by and he says, "Hey, doc, can you help me out? I can't get out of the hole." And the doctor writes him a prescription and throws it in the hole. A priest walks by and he goes, "Father, can you help me? I'm in this hole." And the priest writes a prayer and throws it to him in the hole. And then his best friend walks by and he calls out, Joe, can you help me out, please? I'm stuck in this hole. And Joe jumps into the hole with him. And he says, you're so stupid. Why did you do that? Now we're both in here. And Joe says, yeah, but I've been here before. And I know the way out. I think that's what Second Peter does for us. Where Peter has faced many of the things that we face on a daily basis... Certainly, he has been been in a place of doubt or even denial, but he writes letters to the churches for our sake in order to build us up and give us hope that we have nothing to fear because of God's return. So join me when when I read 2 Peter, starting in chapter 3, verses 10, and I'll be going through verses 18. The Lord says to us in his word, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to, this, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters in which he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Paul is writing to people who have been encountering false teaching and rebuke and scoffing. People who all around him and all around these people are throwing different heresies and different lifestyles with the claim that it doesn't really matter how you live because the Lord is not coming back. He never intervened with people's lives and he won't intervene in people's lives at the end either. So what you do on a daily basis, it's no big deal. Just do whatever you want. But Peter reminds them that the day of the Lord is coming. 
And it will be much like the flood with Noah, except it won't come with water. You won't be able to outswim it. You won't even be able to make a boat that will survive it because everything in the earth will burn. And so basically the book is Peter saying, look at your faith and look at theirs. Look at the doctrine that you know to be true in the scriptures and look at theirs. Look at the life and the lifestyle that you are called to live and then look at theirs. Look at the scriptures that have always been true and have never been shattered and look at the words that they use in order to twist these scriptures. And ultimately the end or the call that Peter says is with all those things, live different. Live like the Lord is returning. Live like the earth is going to be burned by fire and, and all even, evilness and wickedness will be melted away. Live differently. He sets the agenda in many ways in our text, starting in verse 10. I even had doubts this week. Why am I including verse 10 in the rest of these? It starts out really heavy and really big and then goes into a ton of implications for us. But in understanding that the day of the Lord is drawing near and that it's awful in all of its spectacular form, it sets the tone for how we're supposed to live. It gives us the credibility that what we do actually matters because what God is going to do, it will certainly matter against those who are sinful. So first, we, we would see in this text that we ought to be aware that the day of the Lord is coming. So if you're using an outline, number one, be aware that the day of the Lord is coming. Now, I will tell you, this sermon is back-ended by a ton of information. So write concisely at the beginning because you will be overwhelmed at the end with all the stuff. I'm just going to scatter shot out there. But first, be aware that the day of the Lord is coming. Peter reminds us again of what is at stake in our lives if we live like nothing really matters. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. Heavenly bodies will be destroyed by fire. The heavens will pass away like a roar. And the, and the Lord Jesus even speaks of this in Matthew chapter 24 so vividly where the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give off its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will see it and all the tribes of the earth will mourn greatly. Isaiah chapter 66 says, Render his anger and fury is what the Lord will do. And his rebuke will come with flames of fire. So all will stand in front of God at the end. This day of the Lord will have God appear with full justice on those who are his enemies. Full wrath will be poured out on those who are on the side of his enemies. Those who are against him. They will not be able to survive it. But the day of the Lord will also bring the day of God where his permanent, amazing reign for all time will settle justly and permanently on this purified earth. For when Jesus comes back, the earth will be consumed by fire. That won't be obliterated or annihilated. It will be made pure again, like it was in the beginning. And there the heavens will bring down this incredible city that Revelation describes. And it will be an amazing moment against the ungodly and for those God calls his elect. 
And so I think just from an application standpoint, what do we do with that information? We need to make sure that we rightly understand what all that entails. So when God's just wrath is being poured out on the ungodly, we shouldn't just think theoretically or, or some bad people long ago, but remind ourselves that, that all of us are sinful naturally. And all of us were born into sin, and then on a regular basis, we choose sin rather than we choose righteousness. But God was so kind, knowing that we are helpless in our state of humanity, he sent his son, fully God, fully man, to be what we couldn't be for ourselves. Jesus came to the world as a substitute for the ungodly. And by his death on the cross, he he paid what we must need to be paid for our own life. And then he rose from the grave in order to not only show his power, but to overcome and conquer sin. Because at the last day, we will be raised from the grave and we will be seen as God, by God as his own people, as his children. So Romans 5 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, then you have, you have nothing to fear at the day of the Lord. And if you reject Jesus today, yesterday, and tomorrow, when the day of the Lord comes, he will reject you. And it will be full of fire and fury, and you will not survive it. Now, the amazing thing is that that is daunting and apocalyptic and dangerous and scary. But but friend, if you are not in Christ, you need to know that what he offers you is everlasting life by believing in him and trusting in him. And you can believe in him now by by calling out to him, by praying for him to save you, by calling out to him as as Lord and Savior of your life because you cannot do it on your own. And what's so amazing is that he is the owner of everything. And so he will grant you forgiveness. He will pardon your iniquities. He will accept you forever as his own if you call out to him. And friend, if you are not in Christ, the day of the Lord is coming and you should be aware of it. And you must call out to him or you will not survive it. And now in Christ, if you are one of God's own, when the day of the Lord is coming, that's when this indescribable city comes down for you to dwell. And and our text says that that Jesus is, is coming to dwell with his people in full righteousness. And so we need to be aware that that the day of the Lord is coming. And Peter wants the church to be aware of this because not only does this argument counter what the scoffers say, not only does this build up a a sense of doubt in those who doubt who God is, but it also establishes a wonderful permanent foundation of the church that that in trusting who God is both in the future and in the past, we see God for who he is. Merciful, graceful, loving towards his people. And so we need to be aware that the day of the Lord is coming. Second, we need to be diligent in understanding that the day of the Lord is coming. The immediate context of this passage is Jesus, or I'm sorry, Peter is addressing scoffers' claims. And he he builds up to this climax of all of their claims are, are not good enough to stand the test of time or creation or scripture or what Jesus is saying. And that the day of the Lord is coming for them. And because the day of the Lord is coming for them, that that should change how Christians live our daily lives. And what what he first shows us in this text is that the way that this should change our lives is that we should be people who are diligent, 
So look at verse 14. Skip over a couple of verses. Look at verse 14. It says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now the word diligent here is to make haste or to be very eager, to show a lifestyle of eagerness. One definition is, to con- is the conduct of all of those who are called by God as they are aiming for God's pleasure. And in aiming for God's pleasure, we ought to be people who are diligent. Our our moral seriousness is directed towards the end where God is returning for his people. And how we're supposed to be diligent, how we're supposed to be eager, is we're aiming for a lifestyle that is without spot or blemish. Now he does this by, in many ways in in the text, by contrasting this command with the rest of uh, the text who, who are showing itself in the lifestyle of the false teachers, those false prophets, those false or those scoffers. Christians should be blameless in character and spotless in reputation. And so by holding up what Christians ought to be, he reminds us of what it means to not be a Christian. Those who are with spots and those who are with permanent blemishes. He tells us that we ought to be at peace. Because when we think about what God has done, what God promises to do, and we're reminded of God's everlasting and overflowing faithfulness, we are at peace. The idea of his return shouldn't scare us. It shouldn't frighten us. It should put us in a state of of godly fear where we see him as powerful and majestic and holy. But we should be at peace at that. A life with eternal hope and godly obedience is a life that is at peace. So what Peter is doing is he's saying you should be diligent, living a lifestyle that is without spot or blemish, paralleling with the call of the scoffers or the false teachers where they revel in the daytime, it says in 2 Peter chapter 2. They're proud people who in the daytime are basically calling out to the Christians saying, where is your God? He's not coming for you. He's not loving you. Look at the world around you. And Peter's writing to those who might feel that they are in the midst of darkness. And he's reminding them that just after the darkness is the dawn, where the true sun appears and is the light that the world needs. Granted, he's the light that wickedness will not be able to withstand, but he is the light that those who believe in him can hide in him with eternal rest, a rest that gives them peace, and a rest that makes them desire to be diligent, to live a lifestyle that is without spot or blemish. And so Christians are to be eager people to wait in waiting for Christ to return. And this is a great comfort in the midst of difficulty. We should be holy and godly. That's what it should look like for us to wait on the Lord. Not acting like the scoffers or the false teachers, not doing whatever we want, not, not pursuing the flesh, but we should be holy and godly. Now he, he explains this in verses 11 through 12. Where he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What he's saying is, since every wickedness, every evil thing and all wickedness is going to burn away, you shouldn't put your trust or your desire or your life in a fleshly pattern of desire. But you should rather desire to be urgent in hastening the day for the Lord to return. Or you should be diligent in your, in your actions of godliness and holiness, because not only does that remind you of what God has done to you, 
where he's redeemed you and he's made you new and he's given you the ability unlike ever before where you can pursue holiness. But in likewise fashion, you now can be a light to the world where people can look at us at 705 Osuna Road and notice that there are things that are different, that they're not living like the other people in the world, that they have a sense of peace about them, that, that they have a sense of godliness about them, that, that the greatest person who's ever come to the earth and, and walked on the land, that they're like him more than like anything else. And so by doing so, by pursuing a life of holiness and godliness, we not only build ourselves up with confidence, in, in another way of saying making our election sure, but we're also showing the world of what can return for them, a glorious Lord. So how do we do this? How do we work diligently? I think, I think first, just quickly, is we wait with righteous living. We have holy conduct separate from sin. We have a godliness aspiration towards our work, an attitude of reverence that rules our hearts. You know, you, you might put a list down of all the things that you love to do or maybe the things that you wish you could do, and, and you measure them by, is that a pursuit of righteousness? Is that a pursuit of godliness or is that a pursuit of the flesh? And if it's a pursuit of godliness, then go after it. And if it's pursuit of the flesh, then remind yourself of what's at stake for all of the world to see and for all of your soul to find joy in. So we wait with righteous living. We wait for the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 13 is is an amazing verse that portrays what has been previously described in Isaiah 65. And in fact, in many ways, it's just a direct quote. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. What God is bringing down is not just another chance for humans to to prove to him that he is God. But what he's bringing is a place that knows no death, a place that knows no sin, a place that knows no tears and a place that knows no struggle because all that will dwell in this place are purified, glorified, obedient people of the Lord. Because what the Lord is doing in all of our lives as Christians is he's building us up. He's making us more Christ-like. The idea of us being more sanctified is not just trying a whole lot of things and seeing if we can live our best life now, but ultimately we will see the Lord And we will recognize him. And he will recognize us by glorifying us and making us much like his son in a glorious fashion. And so we wait for the new heavens and the new earth because it will be incredible. Things that have been talked about in the Old Testament. Things that have been described in the New Testament. And I think the most incredible thing about the new heavens and the new earth is not you know, what's going to be on the walls, or are we going to walk on glass or gold, or is it water? There seems to be a fountain everywhere. How is a tree in the middle of this? All these metaphors of what the Lord's glory will look like, but the most important thing about the new heavens and the new earth is that righteousness will dwell with us. God in his glory, Jesus in his perfection, and in his lordship will be with his people. Like that is a neighbor that we all want next to us, right? Where we can see him for who he is. And he will not see us for our sin, but he will see us for what he has done for us, given himself over in death for us, and will remember sins no more. And we will see him as one who is righteous and dwells with us. So we see what Peter describes kind of before verse 
14. But then we also see a couple of things of what Peter describes after verse 14. Because I think verse 14 is this, this main point in the text where we are to be diligent and to pursue a life without blot or, or spot or blemish. But then we can look after the text in verse 15. It says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved Paul. Beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with other scriptures. So we can see how we ought to wait and how we ought to be diligent here by understanding or by counting God's salvific work. So remind yourself of not only what is in this passage, but, when, but what came in the section before it, that it really seems like God has taken a long time to return to his people. But what he's actually doing is he's being very, very patient with his own because he, he wants to give them time to come to him, to recognize him. So the longer we think that God is taking, we should be reminded that what God is doing is he's saving more and more people. So we should wait with that anticipation, with that expectation where it seems like the Lord's taking a long time, but, but like I said last week, he can take as long as he wants because he gave me another chance. He was patient with me. He was patient with you. And what Peter's saying here is that, is that Paul said the same thing. So when he's writing to these churches, they, they may have had some or maybe all in certain circumstances, some of Paul's works. And there would have been scoffers and doubters with those passages as well. There would have been people who take Paul and they, and they twist his words and they, they say different things than Paul just most plainly said. And what Peter is saying, look, all in Paul's letters, he's reminding us that the Lord is who he is and he's going to come back. And in many ways, we look at this and we're reminded that people still take Paul's scriptures out of context. They take his letters and they say, he didn't actually mean that when he said that. Or he was writing to a different culture and a different time and in a different place. So when, so when he said this and it was really clear, don't worry about it. It, it. it was clear to them, but it doesn't need to be clear to you. And so what scoffers always do, not just with Peter's audience, but with all of Scripture, whether it's a scoffer or a false teacher or a false prophet, they take what the Lord says and they twist it. And by twisting it, they not only bring condemnation on themselves, but they make it more so for us to get in front of that and to remind people what the Lord actually said. What the Lord actually says is that he is patient with his people who will call out to him and he will come back for it. And when he's coming back for his people in the meantime, they must be diligent. And we can because we can count on God's salvific work. And then also we see in this little section that we can count on God being true to his word. So we count on not only what he has done, as a foreshadowing of what he will do, but we can also count on the words that he has given to the prophets, that he's given to the apostles, that he's given to us in our own scriptures. But not only can we look at what's written before verse 14 and then what's written after verse 14, but I want you to just stare at verse 14. So whether you have a written copy or a tablet, don't care, look at verse 14. Something should, should shine up at you. The reality that the word diligence there, it's not just, you know, the, the cool second point of my sermon, but it's something that Peter has already talked about before in this letter. Diligence is, is in many ways the first bookend, the first of two bookends at the end of Peter's letter where he told us in chapter 1, verse 10, 
So scroll over to that or, or hop over to that. Chapter 1, verse 10. He uses diligent again or for a first time. He says to be diligent to make your election sure. So in this case, be diligent to present yourself blameless, but first be diligent to make your election sure. Or another way of saying it, be diligent to reassure yourself of the foundation of imputed righteousness of Christ. Be diligent through these things of what Peter is talking about. And, and what these things are was a list of holy aspirations. So when Peter is telling us that in light of God coming back, we should be diligent in working, that's not new to us. That's something that he's already talked about. And so it helps us to see what are the things that we must be diligent in. Well, here you have that, that list of eight godly aspirations there. And you look at it and you might think about it and you go, yeah, but that's a lot of work. And it certainly is pursuing God and being diligent to present ourselves without blot or without blamelessness. We, it takes diligence. It takes effort. J.C. Rao reminds us that there is no holiness without holy warfare. And so we must attack sin for where it is because it is certainly against us and after us. But it's encouraging that we're not only reminded of what it looks like to aspire to a life of holy living here, but we also, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up the Sermon on the Mount, where we're reminded in Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, where God tells us of what new believers should be like, what people who have been so changed by the good news of Jesus, how they ought to live. You know, they ought to be blessed people. And what a blessed person looks like is someone who's poor in spirit or someone who mourns, or someone who's meek, or someone who's hungry and thirsty for righteousness, or someone who's merciful or pure in heart. Someone who's blessed is someone who aims to be a peacemaker because they want to be called one of the sons of God. So to apply this to our lives, it, it, if you were me, you like lists and you like stuff to do and you like comparisons and, and you like evaluations. You know, after New Year's, I always think, all right, Brooke, what are we going to accomplish this year? You know, how are we going to be changed and how are we going to grow? And Brooke's like, I just want to see a movie because it's New Year's Day. <laughs> so I, I would encourage you to look at all the spheres in your life where you have influence. You know, you might live with someone. God, God has placed you in that person's life, whether they're a parent or a spouse or, or just a friend. Maybe you work with other people. It's not an accident. You know, he controls and rules over everything. So the people that you interact with on a daily basis, whether through work or through a hobby, or you take your kid to a daycare and you always see the same people, why is God placing you in, in that life? Why is God putting you in that sphere? Or maybe you bump into people all the time on a regular basis, or you have a circle of friends outside of your normal work or your normal home. I would encourage you to evaluate yourself. How can you be diligent in those relationships? To, to use what God has given us as a grid work for a life in pursuing holiness and godliness. How can you grow in those things? How can you grow in a brotherly affection towards the person that you're always around? How can you grow in faith when you're in a relationship that really seems hard to deal with? How can you grow in patience when you live with a person that you live with and they don't clean like you want them to clean? How can the Lord build you up by the spheres of influence that he's placed you around? So the day of the Lord is coming and, and we should be diligent in the meantime. Peter says that we should wait for it with diligence. We should be without spot or without blemish because of our love for him. We should wait with, 
righteous living, anticipating the new heavens and the new earth, to see his patience as a chance for salvation, and to accept God's truth through Scripture as very, very helpful for us to not only hope better, but to see more clearly of who Jesus is. And Peter is doing this for our confidence, for our joy, and for our hope in waiting on the Lord to return. And then finally, we should be people who grow. In waiting for the day of the Lord, we should be growing with expectation and anticipation. Now, verse 18, where I won't start, but it's kind of the main point of this passage. It paints a positive alternative to a negative situation that that Peter gives. We see this because you therefore. So starting off with you therefore, this gives us a negative purpose, a, a negative classification on if you aren't aiming to grow in godliness and waiting for the day of the Lord, this is what will happen. So look at verse 17. It shows us what will happen. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. It's traumatic to think about what will happen when we don't aim to grow in godliness. It's not just that we stay put, but what seems to happen throughout Scripture is that we are impacted by evilness all around us, where we are caught up with the air of lawless living, or, we, or, or even worse, we lose our own stability. We start doubting who God is. We may no longer see him as loving or see him as faithful. And Peter is saying that the best way around that or through that is by growing. Now this word growing, well, the, what it means is growing. You know, you, how, what does it look like to grow? You grow, you physically grow, you physically increase, you, you change, obviously. In the scriptures, we see circumstances where God gives the growth and something then happens. It's not just an emotional feeling or a sense of contentment, but it's actual improvement. Or when Jesus came in the form of a baby and then grew as a child and then grew into a man, he didn't look like a really tiny child anymore. Or when John the Baptist says he must decrease or he must increase and I must decrease. What God is telling us through Peter's words is that we must reject error. And by rejecting air, we can do this by aiming to grow. Now, he tells us to do this uh, in Matthew chapter 10. God says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, we all look at, okay, innocent as doves. I understand what that means. It seems like that means to be diligent people, to be working towards a lifestyle of godliness, but to be wise as serpents, that seems really peculiar because I thought all snakes were bad, not just in the zoo, but also in the scriptures. And we're reminded that one of the unique things about snakes that I've learned recently is snakes don't close their eyes, which is haunting, but also when they go to sleep, they don't close their eyes. Now I know biologically there's like film that comes over so they don't dry out, But in an instant, they can immediately look around. They're always watching. They're always careful. They're always knowing what's around them, and they're sensing that. And the Lord is telling us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. People are out there, and people are also in the church, wanting to twist or confuse what we know to be true. And so we shouldn't be carried away with them. And in fact, we should be aiming after the opposite, where we are growing in the knowledge of who Jesus is. 
So don't be carried away with error, with the error of lawless people. Peter says you can see this by just watching their life. You can see this by just watching their doctrine. You can see this by understanding that when they disagree with the scriptures, you should remember that they didn't, they didn't inspire it. They didn't guide it by the Holy Spirit. It's not their word to misconstrue. And so we should flee that error lifestyle of lawlessness. But positively, in verse 18, we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the second bookend of our book. So what we see at the beginning is that Peter tells us to be diligent, to make our election sure, but he also tells us to grow in the knowledge of who God is, that that is a way to fight against false teaching. That's a way to fight against sinlessness, to keep your eyes on who Jesus is, to not only remind yourself of the gospel, but expand your understanding of all of the gospel implications in your life. I mean, the gospel is not just something that we learn about in VBS, but it's something that we continue to grow in until we pass away. Someone told me about their grandma where she's, she's really, really old and she's getting close to death. And what her daily life looks like is she sits on a couch and she reads the Bible and she falls asleep. She wakes up and she reads the Bible. She falls asleep. She wakes up and she reads the Bible and she falls asleep. And I just think, man, that is such a wonderful example of what we must be like when we pursue growing in the knowledge of who God is. Where, where we can't get enough of it. And even though we need to eat or maybe exercise, maybe, or, or we, we must talk to people, I guess, but are we consuming God enough? The answer is no. Grow in the knowledge of who God is. It helps you fight off evil, but it helps you love him more because all we're doing is seeing him as he's presented himself, as holy and blameless, and he's calling us to be the same. So Peter is bookending this by telling us to grow. Jesus is gloriously excellent through the scriptures in his rule, in his reign, and he's promising to return. And in the meantime, he's telling us to be diligent and to grow in holiness, but he's also telling us to grow in the knowledge of who he is. Okay, so how do you do that? Well, this is the part where you need to save your penmanship for the end. I have 10 things of how you can grow briefly in godliness. You're lucky because on Tuesday, my outline was 23 points. So we've shortened it down. I got most of these from a sermon that was preached in the 1600s by a man named Nathaniel Vincent, who was an English minister, where he asked the question, how may we grow in godliness? Number one, here's how you can grow in godliness. Understand Jesus as God through the scriptures. His majesty, his immensity, his glory that is presented so amazingly should overwhelm us to where we want to find it all over the place. Where Christ is shown in 1 John as the true God in eternal life. The Godhead of Christ makes his blood a price of infinite value. So by seeing him as God, we see him as Savior. So number one, understand Jesus as God. Number two, see Christ's humanity. See Christ's humanity. The, world, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, says our beloved disciple John. It's a great mystery of godliness, says Paul in 1 Timothy, that God is manifested in the flesh. 
His whole life was perfect in that it was free from sin. That the ruler and reigning God of everything, of, all, of which all things were made for and through, dwells among his people. So see Christ's humanity. Number three, know that Christ is the foreordained redeemer. So amazingly, an agreement was made between the Father and the Son where the Son agrees that in the fullness of time, he will come and be born of a virgin to take a physical body and to offer himself up as a physical sacrifice and an atoning sacrifice for all of those who would believe. And he would present himself without spot or blemish to God as a perfect offering for his people. And the the Father promises that by this, eternal life will be given to his elect and salvation will be given to his people and that Jesus will be given the church and there will be a time when the day of God will appear and his kingdom will know no end. So number three, know that Christ is the foreordained redeemer or know that Christ was no accident, that he came for people and he meant to and he always meant to. And he didn't just come for a people in general, but he came for names like you and me. Number four, see Christ's sufferings. Not only see his humanity, not see that he meant to do what he did, but also see his sufferings on earth. This is portrayed in all four Gospels where the sufferings of Christ were truly great, both in body and in soul. His body, this bloody sweat fashioned to the cross to the point of actual death and his soul full of heaviness and sorrow. For just before his death, just before his last breath, when he cries out to the Father, the Father hid his face. His sufferings were unconceivably increased by this frightful forsaking. And he did this for his people. Growing in the knowledge of this. Well, it just makes you love what he did all the more. Number five, comprehend the power of his resurrection. Not only was his death a powerful showing of his authority over sin, but also his resurrection was a permanent showing of what his resurrection would do for sin. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. If Christ were not risen, faith would be worthless. If Christ didn't rise from the grave, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter the decisions that you make. You don't have to be diligent. You don't have to be growing because your life is actually worthless. But by Christ rising from the grave, conquering sin, and showing that he will conquer our death by raising us from the grave, uh, we have all the more to be pleased with. So number five, comprehend the power of his resurrection. Number six, be pleased by his imputed righteousness. By Christ's work, on Christ's account, we are forever justified. God declares, like to the end of the universe, that we are his because Christ's imputed righteousness. Not by our own righteousness, not by anyone else's righteousness, not because I was better today than I was 20 days ago, but by Christ changing my heart, by giving me new life. It's pleasing to be reminded of his imputed righteousness. Number seven, know him as an intercessor. Grow in an understanding of of Jesus as the great intercessor, where he has pity on his people and he's praying for them. 
where he has compassion on his people, where when we cry out to God because we are suffering or we cry out to God because we're confused or we cry out to God because we feel like we're all alone, the amazing thing is that he hears us and he is interceding for his people. Knowing that more and more changes the way that we live, it changes the way that we hope, it changes the way that we rest. So know him, number seven, as the intercessor. Number eight, live within his presence and power in the church. The thing that Christ loves is his people exclusively. The thing that Christ loves is Christ's church. And if you find yourself in Christ but outside of his church, the Bible really doesn't have a category for you. You you really are wandering aimlessly. And there's so much joy to partner in a local body of Christ Because that is where Christ is pleased to dwell among his people who are covenanting together that, okay, if Christ is coming back, then we partner together to walk towards him in godliness and in holiness. Now, whether you partner with that us here at DSC or or another uh, good church, good Bible preaching church down the road, that's great. But if you are outside of the church, be inside of the church. Just as simple as that. The Bible doesn't have a category for, for people who are outside of his flock. Number nine, understand him as the mediator of the new covenant. So Hebrews chapter 12 paints a wonderful picture of this. Where Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And on this covenant, he pardons with mercy. On this covenant, he renews life with grace. And on this covenant, he gives eternal glory to people who were once very, very sinful. And so we can call out to him with the question of God, can you save me? And will you save me? And his answer is yes, because it is up to me. It's my covenant. I am the one who brings true grace. So nine, understand him as the mediator of the new covenant. Number 10, diligently and earnestly anticipate or wait for his return. Wait for the physical return of Jesus. Do this with great anticipation. Do this with great diligence, reminding yourself of what it will be like. And that will get you through the darkness that Peter is is writing to these people for. When faced with opposition, whether outside or inside the church, remind yourself that he's coming back. And when all around you shows a life of wretchedness and evilness and deceit or pain and suffering and death, there will be a day when the Lord will return and our faith will be sight. Now, where do you start with this? So those are the 10 things. Where do you start with this? Well, I think you should have the scriptures in front of you and ask the scriptures about yourself. Ask the scriptures about Jesus. Ask the scriptures about his return. By pursuing those things with the scripture in your hands, you will not only find answers, but but you will never tire of seeking what God has revealed to you. Be the person who wakes up and reads and falls asleep and wakes up and relishes in the glory of Christ and rest eternally knowing that the Lord will come back for you and it will be amazing. So to recap, the day of the Lord is coming and people, Peter says that we should grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ in the meantime by actively rejecting error and actively focusing on or studying about or relishing in the particulars of the gospel. What brought us into the fold is what we can focus on all the more to build anticipation of what the Lord will bring because he will bring himself 
And so when we focus on who Jesus is and when we aim to grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is, when he appears, we will know exactly the kind of joy that we will have because it will look like him and it will last for all eternity. Jesus is coming back. And Peter says, even though the church is under attack, we have Jesus to hope in and to hope for. So beloved, don't be, don't be at risk of being carried away by false idols or false teaching. Don't risk being carried away by the fleshly desires, but be swept up in who Jesus is. In the face of doubt or fear, false teaching or scoffing, we see the Lord as patient to bring people to himself. And as we wait, he calls us to be holy. He calls us to be spotless. He calls us to grow in the knowledge of God and it will feed us on a daily basis. It will be like a buffet that we've never experienced before, but it will be a foretaste of a meal that will last forever when we dine with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning grateful and thankful that you show us who you are. That you show us who you are as Lord, that you show us who you are as Savior, that you show us who you are as friend. And Lord, we do ask that you come. We ask that you come quickly. And in the meantime, we pray that you would guide us and direct us by your Spirit, that we would be diligent workers for your glory, that we would grow in understanding of how glorious you are. Father, we do this because of your Son's work for us and in us. And we do this with great expectation of him dwelling with us. So we say these things in his name and power. Amen.